Take your Bibles, please, and open to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. There is a literary device called irony. It's interesting. It's, it's a way of making foolish, an example of foolishness. It's a way to encourage wisdom and to, and to uh, show wisdom. You ever... Um, Examples of irony, like writing a long essay against the evils of the internet and posting it on your Facebook page. And it would be ironic. It shows the folly of the person who did it, the foolishness of the person. Or the, the man who tragically had a heart attack while jogging. Like, shows, exposes folly and foolishness. Or, or the fire department that burned to the ground. Or the note from the teacher, a present company excluded, with misspellings in it, right? Or, or the girl I cut off in traffic one day inadvertently, and I could tell she had a what would Jesus do bracelet on while, because I could see it while she was making an obscene gesture at me. I, I heard a loud scream one time and rushed downstairs. One of our children was just screaming like, they got their arm cut off. It was Daniel. He's not present, so I can talk about him. I said, Daniel, what in the world? He was just a little boy. What in the world happened to you? And he was just like livid. She took my what would Jesus do bracelet and she won't give it back. That's irony. Like you're supposed to give those away. Or, or the irony of this, you know, you've heard this said, it takes as much faith to believe in atheism as it takes to believe in God. There's an irony in that. Or this is a true story. The ACLU demands a manger scene be removed from the town square <laughs> in Santa Monica, California. A city named after a saint, right? Um, or, or this was one of my favorites. They canceled the men's meeting, the Bravehearts meeting, because there was a half inch of snow. <laughs> that was good. Or maybe the dairy farmer who was lactose intolerant. Just irony, you know, just, just demonstrates folly, and, and it's a way of a poetic way, as a literary device in, in words or in drama, in order to make folly obvious, foolishness obvious, and wisdom obvious. And, and Jesus used it. He told a story about a rich man who was going to tear down his barns and build more, but he didn't realize he wouldn't be able to enjoy them because he was going to, the Bible says it this way, the next day his soul would be required of him. It's irony. It's exposing of folly. The scene that we're going to study this morning in Matthew 26, 57 through 68 is thick with irony. And perhaps the best way to feel the force of this passage, I believe, after spending hours thinking about it and studying it and probing it, is just to see the pitiful irony of this passage. So let's set the scene. Jesus will have two trials. He will have two trials. There will be six phases altogether, three phases of each of the trials. You could say he has six trials, or you could say two. The ecclesiastical trial, the Jewish trial, and three phases of that, if you correlate the gospel accounts. And then there's the civil trial, the Roman trial, and the three phases of that. In the ecclesiastical trial, it is trial at the hands of the Jews. There's the brief trial before Annas. And then there is this that we're going to talk about this morning in Matthew, the trial before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and Caiaphas' palatial mansion. And then there's another brief excuse for a trial just before daybreak, which we'll see when we get to Matthew 27 and verse 1. Three phases of the ecclesiastical or the Jewish trial, the church 
state church trial kind of thing. But of course, you know, there was the Roman occupation, and so the Jews didn't have the right to execute, and this is what they wanted. That There would have to be a Roman trial to achieve an execution, and there would be the civil trial, the Roman trial, and three phases of that. The trial before Pilate, and then he goes to Herod, and then the third phase back to Pilate again. Two trials, three phases each, in a sense like six trials when you put the accounts, the accounts all together. William Hendrickson has written a wonderful commentary. You've probably benefited from him more than you realize. In, in his commentary on Matthew, he said something poetic, greedy, serpent-like, vindictive Annas, rude, sly, hypocritical Caiaphas, crafty, superstitious, self-seeking Pilate, immoral, ambitious, superficial, haired Antipas, these were the judges of Jesus Christ. Let's read the story in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 26. And we're beginning there in verse 57 and reading in through verse 68. Could I ask you to stand together as we read God's Word this morning? And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He spoke in blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He's deserving of death. Let's stop there. Be seated. It's in the spring of the year. It's deep into the night. The moon had grown full. It was a cold night. The guards would have to light a fire to stay warm. Darkness is stirring in dark hearts in a cold city on a dark night. On this week of holy observance of Passover, behind closed doors, men who are supposed to be the custodians of holy things are plotting evil things against the holiest of holy men. It's the week of Passover, and lambs will be slain. They will sinfully condemn the Lamb of God to death. To the palace of Caiaphas, the palatial residence of the high priest. He was an evil man. He was a corrupt man. He was on the take. He was eager to kill Jesus. He was jealous. And jealousy will drive even reasonable men to do unspeakably foolish things. And this was not a reasonable man. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's the great creator. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the coming king. He's the Messiah. I'll say it again. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's the great creator. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the coming king. He's the Messiah. 
But he's been dragged before this joke of a court, this kangaroo court. All true justice and all true procedure have been set aside to trump up false charges because they have a desire to humiliate Jesus and discredit him because they want to murder him, because he's cutting into their game, because of their egos, because they're jealous. Their popularity and their tentative grip on the delicate political balance with Rome is in jeopardy. And they want him to die. The scene is characterized by irony. There are so many points of irony that it might be the best way for us to understand this passage. The message of this section is best understood by probing this irony and the foolishness that it exposes and the wise and the wisdom that it exposes. Notice in verse 57, the first point of irony, they seized and bound Jesus, who is the only one who can set people free. According to John, they bound him. According to our passage, it's talking about the seizure of Jesus. Here's another point of irony. In verse 59, they sought false witnesses against Jesus, who is the true witness of God. There's foolishness brewing here. There's another point of irony in verse 62. He was the word in the flesh, and they accused him of silence. His very being was communication from God. In verse 63, they demanded that God swear by God, accusing God of blasphemy is another point of irony. Jesus made a powerful statement of his deity there. In, in, verse, in verse 63, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered, said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you're Messiah, the Son of God. He's asking, do you claim to be God? Do you claim to be Messiah? Jesus said, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, that designation for the Messiah that comes from Daniel chapter 7. You will see the Son of Man. He's referring in a third person to himself. You, sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. A clear statement, an absolute clear statement of not only his messiahship, but his divinity. Don't ever let anybody tell you, a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or anybody that's confused in a cult of some kind, tell you that they believe the Bible, but the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. That's just a silly a silliness. Absolutely, his enemies knew he was claiming to be God. This is why they wanted to kill him. This is what they used to, to murder him. But think of the irony of it. They demanded that God swear by God. So, in verse 65, they blasphemed God when they accused God of blasphemy. The whole thing is thick with irony. It exposes that foolish men are doing something very foolish. In verse 66, they they called for death of the one who is the author of life himself. They they hated Roman oppression and Roman occupation, but they called for his death in the other accounts, saying that he was stirring up insurrection against Rome. But they hated Rome. There was a lot of foolishness here. Here's another point of irony in the text. They unjustly judged the the only righteous judge ever. The only absolute righteous judge that would never make a mistake of judgment, they unjustly judged. 
It's an unjust court of justice. They're guilty of judging as guilty the only innocent man who ever walked on earth. They violated the law because they accused him of threatening the law. They broke the law over and over again to protect their legal system. It's full of irony. And who was this man? Well, now let's just ask Matthew that question. Matthew, the tax collector whose life was transformed by this wandering evangelist in Galilee. Let's ask Matthew what he says. Matthew wrote a tract on this. A a passionate appeal to understand who Jesus is to display and to the beauty of Christ. What is he like? Let's back up and let's go through Matthew and let's see what Matthew said. Who is this man that stands before these unjust, foolish judges? In chapter 1 of Matthew, Jesus is the descendant of David. Matthew says Jesus has the pedigree of the Messiah. The birth and circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ are clearly a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that it might be fulfilled, which the prophets have spoken, is said over and over again. So this Jesus who stands before these men is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy born of a virgin and miraculous virgin birth. His name was a name given by angels, Jesus, that one that would come to deliver or save his people. In chapter 2, he's born in Bethlehem, David's town, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And there's a great star that announces his birth, and kings come from afar in chapter 2. And they bring in valuable gifts, and they worship this man. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, then the little family, the holy family, flees to Egypt to avoid the homicidal hatred of Herod. And he returns then, and he grows up as a boy in the gentle hills of Galilee in a town called Nazareth, a fulfillment of prophecy. This is one special man. In chapter 3, Matthew says, at the outset of his ministry, he began to expose the hypocrisy and the oppression of this distorted and perverted religious system which was so oppressive to people and would guide them to hell. He was baptized by John in Jordan, and the heavens opened, and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came from God out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and I am well pleased with Him. I called my dad to hear this this morning. And I wasn't disappointed, but while I was talking with him, my phone beeped because one of my sons was calling for me to say the same thing to him. Jesus' father said to him, for all to hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In chapter 4, Matthew said he resisted temptation from the devil. A man is a man when a man learns to resist temptation. Forty days without food, he's in the stark wilderness And then he sets up headquarters in chapter 4 in Capernaum, Matthew says, on the Sea of Galilee, a fulfillment of prophecy. This is where he would meet Matthew. He called the people to repent, and he called his disciples to follow, and he began to minister to great crowds. This is where the plot thickens. He begins to heal the afflicted, people that have various pains and diseases and epileptics and paralytics, and he heals them, and great crowds follow him, not just from Galilee, but also from Jerusalem and from Judea and even beyond, from Jordan and Decapolis. Jewish and non-Jewish. People love him. They follow him. They listen to him. They clamor for his attention. He heals their sick. He's a wonder. Matthew is painting a beautiful portrait of a wonderful, wonderful man who is God, who is man, the most wonderful man ever, ever to grace planet Earth. In chapter 5 through 7, then, Jesus takes his disciples up on a mountain and he teaches them. 
The greatest teaching ever known to humanity. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He sets a standard of righteousness that is way beyond the self-righteous system of the Pharisees. He's going to place a deep hunger for righteousness into the hearts of people. In Matthew chapter 8, he cleanses a leper. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He warns his followers of the cost of following him. He miraculously calms a violent storm on Galilee, and he delivers a demon-possessed, two demon-possessed men, and that's just in chapter 8. He's wonderful. In chapter 9, he healed a paralytic. He was accused of blasphemy because he forgave people of their sin. He called Matthew from being a publican to being an apostle. And he transformed people's lives miraculously. He raised a little girl to life. And he healed an afflicted woman. And he healed two blind men. And he restored speech to a man who had been silenced by demons. And he challenged his disciples to see that the world was like a harvest ripe, ripe for the harvest. To God. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10, Matthew said he gave his disciples authority over unclean spirits and the ability to heal and and help them. And, And he sent his disciples out. He warned them that persecution would come again. He told them his power was not in the sword. He promised that he would reward those who showed hospitality to them. A wonderful promise. He was good and kind and powerful and wise and beautiful. His teaching was fascinating and absolutely true. His power was amazing. How, who has ever filmed a movie about a person more wonderful than Jesus? Who's ever written a story that even compares at all with the story that Matthew is writing about Jesus? Who in the world would you ever want to meet before you meet this man? And this is the man that stands in trial before unjust men, hypocritical men. Chapter 11, he received messengers from John the Baptist and assured them of who he was. And he pronounced woe to unrepentant cities. He, he promised soul rest in chapter 11 to all those who would come to him. And since that time, millions of people troubled have awakened in the night to comfort themselves with that passage. In chapter 12, he healed the man with a deformity. He defended people against a slavish observance to an extra-biblical Sabbath law. He hinted at his resurrection. He warned of the demonic oppression that would increase when he was rejected. He declared his faithful followers, his mother and brothers, his family. In chapter 13, he told stories, not just any story, but stories of the kingdom, wonderful, wise, witty, divine stories that revealed the heart of his kingdom and the nature of true righteousness at the same time hiding the truth of God from people who were unworthy to hear it. He he presented himself in his hometown as Messiah and he was rejected. In chapter 14, he fed 5,000 people miraculously on the grassy slope on the north shore of Galilee. He walked on the water and he healed the sick and declared himself the bread of life. In chapter 15, he resisted the opposition of the Pharisees. He always resisted the opposition of the Pharisees. And he was always there to help the oppressed. He healed the daughter of a woman from Canaan. He healed many others. And then he did another feeding, this time of 4,000 Gentiles in Decapolis. In chapter 16, he continually resisted and exposed the oppression and the distortion of the Pharisees. He traveled up to Caesarea Philippi, with his disciples for a teaching retreat. He readied them there for what they would have to face. In chapter 17, he was transfigured on the mountain and he returned and delivered a demon-possessed boy that no one else could help. And then he foretold his death and resurrection. And then he helped the disciples pay their taxes. 
Can I get a witness on that one? Yeah. And then in chapter 18, he warned about the danger of offending others, especially little ones. You know, he loved little ones. He told the parable of lost sheep. He told the parable of the unforgiving servant. And these stories still ring down through time. In chapter 19, he went beyond Jordan and he taught on marriage in the face of Herod who defiled marriage. He, he welcomed children when others denied them. He had time for little ones. He had a talk with a would-be follower called the rich young ruler in chapter 19 who went away sorrowful. In chapter 20, he told the story of laborers in a vineyard and foretold his death for the third time. And he gently taught his disciples the servant way. And he healed two blind men by the roadside. What a picture Matthew's painting of Jesus. How could you not adore him? How could you not love him? How could you stand in judgment at a man, of a man, of, on a man like this? You'd have to be sick, perverse, possessed, perverted. Your mind would have to be distorted with sin. In chapter 21, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey in triumph, a fulfillment of Scripture, and he cleansed the temple. And he told a series of stories that exposed the perversion and the oppression of the religious system of his day. In chapter 22 of Matthew, he told the parable of the wedding feast to warn the nation that he silenced arguments of the religious liberals. He clarified the great commandment. In chapter 23, he spent the whole chapter publicly pronouncing seven woes against the oppressive religious scheme of the Pharisees. In chapter 24 and 25, he, gave, he gathered his disciples on the Mount of Olives and told them about the future. He gave the Olivet Discord to comfort and encourage his followers. And then in chapter 26, he prepared his disciples and he was betrayed. And he was anointed for burial in Bethany among friends. He celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He prayed in the garden and then he was betrayed by his friend into the hands of his enemies. And now he stands in this scene that's thick with irony. Unjust judges judging the judge of the entire universe. Now I want you to imagine this scene with me from the distance. Perhaps the distance that Peter saw this scene from. Let's imagine like Peter, we're sitting at a distance away with the enemies of Christ looking on. What do we see now? So far, they've been doing all the talking. Witnesses have slithered in and out with false testimony. None of it's really sticking. The chief priest, who's prostituted his position for his own ego, and he's been doing all the talking, he's just taunting Jesus. That's all he's doing. There's no substance to it. It's completely a violation of all the legal ethics of the Jews. He's the only one who's talking. And Jesus is silent. And he's abandoned all appropriate protocol for trials. And in his desperate desire to trump up charges that will give him an excuse to demand a Roman trial and execution, he finally happens on an accusation. And he forces Jesus to speak. And we're sitting with Peter in our imagination, and we're watching from a distance, and we're hearing the conversation, but now things, the whole book of Matthew takes the most awful turn in these verses. The whole picture of how beautiful Jesus is, how wonderful he is, how precious he is, how magnetic his character is, turns 
into an ugly mob scene, and men spring forward and begin to spit in the face of this man. They begin to curse and spit and strike him with their hands or rods and fists. In another gospel, they say they tied something around his eyes, and here they say, if you're Christ, prophesy who hit you. The men turn from threatening gestures to acts of studied contempt. They spit in his face over and over again. It's demonic. They spring forward, turn this scene into a mob scene. They slap him. They beat him. They blindfold him. They hit him. They they demand that if he's Christ, he can prophesy and tell who hit him. And this face, they hit his face. This face that smiled on children. This most beautiful face that looked with mercy on the penitent sinner like you and I. A face that took upon, looked upon the broken with compassion. The face that looked upon simple people with understanding. The face that had infinite love. They began to punch him and slap him and spit in his face. Did anyone ever do anything so foolish in all the world? The irony intensifies more. The one they beat, abused, dishonored was gentle. He was merciful himself. He was the king of love sent from heaven with a message of love to deliver people from shame and, and from sin and from guilt and from sickness and from sadness and from oppression. And they vented their wrath on this one who would pour out his just wrath one day on them. In verse 68, they made mockery of his prophetic ability who was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. And now we'll read it as hard as it is to read. In verse 67, they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ Who is the one who struck you? And there the scene ends. With sinful men beating and mocking Jesus. He was the personification of wisdom. And they were accusing him of folly. And they were making him the object of mockery. The irony is they were the fools. They were the greatest fools. There's no greater folly than to mistreat Jesus, reject Jesus. There's no greater folly than to misidentify Jesus, calling calling him something he isn't, or believing in a Jesus that really isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Nothing more foolish They abused the one who was the fulfillment of the symbolism of the temple because he said the temple service would end. Now, what does does all this mean if you haven't gotten this? And I'm sure you have, but what is the point? They were making him out to be a fool, but they were the fools. There is no foolishness so dark, so foolish as the foolishness of rejecting or ignoring Jesus. Things were the opposite of what they seemed. In this scene, the people who took who look wise are foolish, and the one who is mocked as foolish is the only one who's wise. So today, in verse 58, we go back to verse 58. 
And we see this interesting phrase that the Holy Spirit and Matthew collaborated to insert. That's going to be very significant because the next scene will involve the person who surfaces in verse 58. What does it just say? In a kind of a understatement, Peter followed at a distance. And he sat there with the enemies of Jesus. And we don't want to be too harsh with Peter. Remember, Peter sprang to Jesus' defense immediately with a sword. And Jesus said, put your sword away. Peter must have been a bit confused. Okay, what do I do? I, I, I sprung to his defense. I was ready to die. He said not to do that. And he actually healed the man that Peter injured. And he warned me, live by the sword, die by the sword. So then Peter follows at a distance. And we'll see in the next scene, it was a dangerous thing to do. And it's always a dangerous thing to follow Jesus at a distance. And as your pastor, I wonder, how many of us are really following Jesus? But it's at a dangerous distance. And is that wise? I think not. Fools refuse to follow him. It's foolish to follow at a distance. And to daily submit to his wonderful, this wonderful God-man that Matthew paints a portrait of is the only way to avoid becoming the worst of fools and the victim of eternal tragedy. Maybe today you'd like to have counsel about salvation or some other matter in your life. And during our last song, I would welcome you to come and take my hand. Or maybe you'd like to come and, and just pray. Kneel here, talk to God while we sing and close the distance between you and this beautiful man, this beautiful God-man who is Jesus. We've arranged a beautiful song for us to sing together. All who follow him, all who serve him, all who pray to him, all who please him, all who worship him, all who give to him, all who love him are wise. But those who refuse him, are fools. Stand and let's sing together.